Lord, on this 243rd birthday of our country, we have celebrated, we've cooked out, we've spent time with family, we have remembered the sacrifice of so many so that we can have the freedom to do what we've done so far this morning. We are grateful for our freedoms, both as a nation and as people of Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, for our country today. I pray for our national, state, and local leadership that we would lead quiet and peaceable lives with all godliness and contentment. I ask you, O oh Lord, to help us to minister to the poor, the broken, those who cannot protect themselves. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to be found faithful. And part of that requirement, Father, is to be all in. The days of nominal Christianity are coming to a close. So, Father, help us here at First Baptist to be all in for your glory and for our good. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Greg. It's going to be my intention these next 28 minutes or so to minister God's word to us in such a way that we will not only hear the challenge, but we will accept the challenge to be a people who are all in. I started preparing this sermon last Tuesday and finally wrapped it up sometime on Saturday morning. And when I noticed the chapter in Mark Batterson's book, Burn the Ships, I said, that's got to be my sermon title. And what that's talking about is that there are some of us, just like explorers of old, that once they reached a shore somewhere, they had to decide that there was no plan B. They had to say, we got to burn the ships so that we can move forward. In fact, if you look at history, you'll find these great military strategists as well as other explorers. One of them, the legendary Alexander the Great. He built an empire that stretched from ancient Greece to India. And one of his strongest and most fearsome enemies was the Persian Empire of Darius III. In 334 BC, Alexander led a fleet of Greek and Macedonian ships across the Dardanese Straits and into Asia Minor. And when he reached the shore, Alexander ordered his men to burn the ships. He told his men that we will either return home in Persian ships or we will die here. Many of us in this room are at a crossroads in our life. We are at a burn the ships moment. I'm either going to move forward or I'm going to die right where I'm standing. Sometimes because of past decisions that have now caught up with us. For others, it's an unwillingness to move forward because we are stuck spiritually, emotionally, even sometimes physically. There are any number of characters that I could have chosen, but I felt that maybe Elijah and Elisha would give us our best understanding of being all in. I know that you've studied in Sunday school the book of First and Second Kings, but in First Kings it talks about Elijah bursting onto the scene. 
He predicts a drought over all of Israel because of the wickedness of a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab was actually the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel, but he was one of the most wicked kings ever. In fact, on the screen you'll see in 1 Kings 16 and 30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So let's put it in context. He was worse than Hitler, worse than Stalin, worse than any other despot or dictator that's ever lived on the planet. If you see evil leader, you see the name Ahab. So in response to that evil, God raises up Elijah to prophesy to King Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You got to be a powerful prophet to keep it from raining. You better be walking with God when you stand up and make such a claim that it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. Elijah and God were on intimate terms with one another because he was one of his prophets. Elijah the Tishbite. Well, when the drought came, it not only affected the wickedness of King Ahab, it affected all others as well, even those who were trying to serve or live for God. So God initially provides for Elijah through the drought by leading him down to a creek, a brook named Kareth. Ravens and birds would bring him food in the morning, in the evening time, and he drank from the creek. Well, as we know, over time, when a drought takes place, the brook dries up. So God leads him to a widow and her son at Zarephath. She provides for him food from a jar of flour and oil that supernaturally never ran dry. Well, over the course of time, the widow's son dies, and Elijah has to raise him from the dead. In fact, 1 Kings 18 that we're about to delve into is one of the most exciting chapters in all of the Old Testament. Why? Elijah confronts Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Well, of course, we know the end of the story. Elijah wins a stunning victory over the enemies of God, and the drought comes to an end. Now, most of us, after that great pinnacle moment of our lives, we want a ticker tape parade. We want to be hailed as the conquering hero. But chapter 18 of 1 Kings slides precipitously into chapter 19. And I love chapter 19 because it helps me to identify a little bit with some of my biblical heroes. In fact, we recognize the humanity of those that God uses. Because the story sort of plays out that King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who was a wicked woman in her own right, she threatens Elijah and sends him into enough despair that he asks God to take his life. 1 Kings 19 and 4. Now the reason why I share that with you is that there are some of us right now in the despair of Elijah. We've had some great things happen to us. We've got a great family. Things have been wonderful. Um, our bank account has money in it. We can pay our bills. As far as we know, our kids are healthy. A lot of good things are going on. But then that one thing that turns our world upside down happens to us, and we go into despair. 
And I've thought many times over the last 30 years of preaching this particular sermon out of 1 Kings 18 and 19, I said, Lord, Elijah should have been stronger than that. How could this mighty prophet, this mighty man of God, become so desperate in his depression that he, he would want to take his own life or ask God to take his life? But you know what I've learned as well? Some great and godly men and women that I know and that you know we all struggle at times. Sometimes it's public. Everybody knows about it, and they put it on the front page of the newspaper. Other times, we suffer silently. It's behind closed doors. Nobody else knows about it. Nobody reads about it on social media. It's just between you and God. Yes, Elijah struggled. Now, we know the story that, that God actually leads Elijah into a cave. Yahweh Elohim speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice and actually rescues Elijah. If my mom was in here, she could give testimony that when I was born, I came out of the womb giving orders. I came out of the womb loud. And she said, and you never got over being loud. You were loud as a child. When you played catcher in baseball for 14 years, you drove the batter and the umpire crazy. You're just loud. God has to speak loud to me to get my attention most of the time. More than likely, Elijah and I are kindred spirits. Elijah wanted to see God move in a mighty way. But at that particular moment in the cave, it was with a still, small voice. It was not in the wind. It was not in the earthquake. And it was not in the fire, but it was in a still, small voice. Now, here's your homework. Over the next few days, God's going to use a man or woman of God in your life. It could be a child. It could be someone older than you. It could be a peer of yours who's going to speak into your life in a still, small voice, and you need to listen. It may not be the preacher preaching this morning. It may not have been your Sunday school lesson of a little while ago. But somebody's going to cross your path this week and in a still, small voice going to give you a word from God. Are you willing to listen? If you're all in, you'll be willing to listen. Now, do I still want God to show up in an earthquake, in the wind, in the fire? Absolutely. I love when God puts on a light show. Amen? But sometimes, though, he simply speaks to us in a still, small voice. So we understand and know a little bit now about Elijah. Well, now we sort of transition in our story to Elisha. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says... So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th, and Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. That was a symbol that you would be my successor, and there really can be no success without a successor. In fact, I stand before you today about to celebrate my fourth year with you as pastor. But you know what? In reality, comparing our lifespan and whatever, I'm nothing but an interim. Wason is nothing but an interim worship pastor. If you're a deacon, you're nothing but an interim deacon because there will come a time that we all have a shelf life. And either by death or promotion or we pass to another place, it happens to us all. Elijah knew that. So what does he do? He sees Elisha, and he puts his cloak over him, letting him know, you're the next in line. I'm going to mentor you. In fact, wasting just a few minutes ago, seeing Caleb 
on the base. A number of years ago, you put your cloak on him. When, when Brooke sings for us in the bridge, I see that. I see this type of relationship. And so Elijah saw Elisha, and he put his cloak upon him. Verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elijah left him. Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Hmm. What did Elijah do? Elijah said it was time. He puts the cloak on him. Now Elisha says, I'm all in. So the oxen, he slaughters them, then has a barbecue and feeds the whole community. But there's something about those oxen. There's something about that farming equipment that we need to understand. You see, burning the plowing equipment was Elisha's way of burning the ships. He said, that's not me anymore. It was the end of Elisha the farmer, and it was the beginning of Elisha the prophet. And there was no way he was going to go back to his old way of life because he destroyed the time machine that would take him back. There are some of us in this room that have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. Why? Because you're not willing to go all in on your dream. You have settled on a normalcy, if you will, that's based upon your unwillingness to go all in. Go all in on the marriage. Go all in on raising the kids. Going all in on your job. No, we have this nostalgia from our past. In fact, every once in a while I'll be at the gym and I'll be listening to Pandora music and I'll put it on the 80s channel. I'm a child of the 80s. Graduated high school in 1982. And man, some of those songs, they'll come on and man, it makes me remember a person. It remembers me, makes me remember a place. It makes me remember something. But after that three and a half minute song is over with, I can keep moving forward. Some of us are stuck there. And we always want to go back there. We're stuck in our sin because we are unwilling to burn our ships. Elisha eliminated the possibility of going back to farming by eating his own oxen and burning his own plowing equipment. So let's read it again. Can we please? Verse 21. So Elisha left him and went back. Who did he leave? He left Elijah. Left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Now, Joel, do you think him burning the equipment was necessary? Well, I don't think he had to burn his plowing equipment, but it made a statement. That's why we usually have an invitation after every message. It allows you to get out of your comfort zone and to step out and to make a statement. I believe that Elisha burning his equipment and slaughtering the oxen was his statement of faith. He was now entering into a prophetic apprenticeship with Elijah but he said, you know what, if this doesn't pan out, I don't have anywhere else to turn. Oh, we live in the days of wanting to always have something to fall back on. That is good, and sometimes that's even wise, but most of the time that keeps you from going all in. If you know that there may be another person out there, you're never going to go all in in your marriage. 
If, if you're always saying, maybe there's another job, maybe there's a promotion out there, I'm never going to go all in where I am. Most of us get stuck spiritually because we keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. And when I speak to my fellow counselors, my fellow pastors, and we have conversations without names, of course, of people that we're ministering to, most of the people already have their mind made up when they come into counseling. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing regardless of what Joel says. Regardless of what that pastor says. We are stuck spiritually. Is that you? Is that somebody that you know? Is that somebody that you love? Because at some point in our lives, most of us stop living out of imagination and we start living out of our memory. The good old days. We become nostalgic. When my grandfather took his life in 1956 and the Carwile family struggled for any number of years, when my dad and I have those conversations now, he'll look at me and say, the good old days are now. The good old days were not then when we were starving and didn't have enough food to eat for eight kids. He said, I got to live in the now. Some of us in this room have become so nostalgic, we're tethered to our past. Because sometimes it's not that our past was so bad we won't go forward, it's that our past was so good. Look at our successes. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. And that keeps you from moving forward. Because we get in our minds, I've got to do it how I used to do it in order to be successful tomorrow. And now usually what got you here won't get you there. Because most of us in this room, um, Joe and I have been trying to sort of redo some of the things on the house, getting ready to do some things in the future. And I came across my first cell phone. It came from Radio Shack. My granddaddy, who's now in heaven, bought it for me. And the reason why he bought it for me is that he was having some health issues and he wanted to be able to get in touch with me anytime he wanted to. But you know how big my first cell phone was? It was a bag about this big. It's hard to put one of those on your hip, amen? But see, the phone I now use, I can just slip it into my back pocket. But some people would say, you know what, I bought that phone, I paid good money for that phone, and I'm going to keep using that phone. Well, that phone is unusable now. Just like some of the ways that you and I want to keep acting are unusable now. It's time to move forward. But yet some of us are still stuck in yesterday. Therefore, any of our tomorrows have no hope because we're unwilling to move forward. You know, Paul talked about this in Philippians 3. I preached verse by verse of the book of Philippians about two and a half years ago here. He says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's whether your past has been bad or your past has been good. You've got to forget what lies behind you and begin to run the race stretching forward ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, to really understand the context of this story, we've got to find out where Elisha was from. Well, he was actually born in a region of Israel known as Abel Mahala. The English meaning of that Hebrew word is meadow of dancing. 
In fact, if you look on a map, it was the breadbasket of the Jordan River Valley. So Elisha's family had a very productive and profitable farming operation. So burning the plowing equipment was more than just quitting his job. It meant he was now on his own. It's not easy to go all in. There will be consequences. Because in the short term, you may think that you've made the wrong decision because you'll be criticized. And sometimes the criticism comes from the people that are closest to you. You want to do what? You want to major in what at school? You'll never get a job in that. Have you lost your ever-loving mind? I'm spending tens of thousands of dollars for you to go to school and major in that? Well, I was just thinking about it. Maybe I need to change my major. It's very difficult to go all in, especially when you've heard the voice of God. Now, let me, let me just use our sanctified imaginations for a moment. Can you imagine Elisha's mom and dad? You did what to the oxen? You did what to the equipment? You did what? Yeah, Dad. Man, this guy, Elijah, he put his cloak on me. I got called into the ministry, and, 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 and it was just the right thing to do. I, I had to burn the ships because I'm now moving forward. Not everybody's going to be up with your dream. Not everybody's going to like what you want to do. That's part of the problem. We have created a normal that isn't necessarily sinful. It's just dull, boring, and inconsequential. It means that what I'm doing in my life impacts no one else. Some of us have chosen to live a quid pro quo life. God, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't make deals. He wants total and complete obedience to his word according to his will. Now, for time's sake, I need us to move fast forward pretty quickly. 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, verse 9 and 10. So when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. That's what good mentors do. What can I give you? How can I invest in you? And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Elisha had been around Elijah long enough to know that guy's different. Elijah has something that I don't yet have. I want it, but I want more of it. I want a double portion of what you have, Elijah, and I want it to come on me. Look at verse 10. And he said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Saying, if you're right here and you hadn't left, you hadn't gone back to the past, you hadn't gone back to the oxen, you hadn't gone back to the farming equipment, if you'll stay right here with me, you'll receive that double portion. Look at verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. This begs the question, did Elisha receive Elijah's double portion? Yes, he did. Did Elisha burn his ships? Yes, he did. Did Elisha walk in obedience? Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if you know this or not, but during his 60 years of prophetic ministry, Elisha performed 28 miracles, according to Scripture. 
That's twice as many as the 14 miracles that the prophet Elijah performed. The double portion came. There are some of us in this room that want to impart a double portion upon our children, upon our grandchildren. I believe it to be the right thing to do. So with Elisha in mind, let me share this with you. Some date the concept of burning the ships in history from the times of Julius Caesar and his conquest of England or even the ancient Greeks to the Vikings. But regardless of the timeline of history, the scenarios and the impact were similar. At its essence, burning or scuttling boats represents a point of no return. There are some of us here this morning that need to make a decision about something in order to move forward, but you're unwilling to do it. You're unwilling to make a psychological commitment because you recognize I'm going to have to cross a line and I can never go back. Because some of us right now, we're living our lives always looking over our shoulder, wondering if there's something better. If there's something in our past that maybe we want to go back to. Jesus told us over and over again, if a man puts his hand to the plow, keep your eyes forward because you'll never be able to run a straight line planting your crops looking backward. No one's ever done it, and you and I can't do it as well. That's why there needs to come a moment in our lives that we go all in. In the year of our Lord, 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez he employed a similar strategy. Though, although he did not burn his ships, he scuttled all but one of his ships when he landed on the shores of Mexico to embark on a campaign against the Aztecs. Now, the reason why I bring this story up is that it's the word scuttle. Many of you have been on ships and you've been on boats. Some of you served in the military. And when you scuttle a ship, it means you, you would run it aground. Well, Cortez ran these ships aground, and then he took the wood and the framing and the other part of the scuttled ship, and he created barracks for his troops. Some of you in this room maybe not necessarily need to burn your ship, but you need to scuttle the ship, then use the remaining part of it as part of your testimony to say, don't walk the path I've walked. Don't do it the way that I've done it. Because if you do, there's going to come a time in your life where you'll realize you should have burned your ships. All of us make mistakes. Please don't misunderstand what I'm sharing today. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means your pastor, it means every deacon, it means every one of us in this room. For those who are watching on live stream, for those who will watch in the days ahead on television, hear me out today. All of us have messed up. But primarily the audience I'm speaking to is those who mess up but never learn a lesson. You just keep doing the same things. I want a different result, but I just keep doing the same things. That's the definition of insanity. So the question is, are you willing to go all in? Are you willing to burn some ships that are taking you in the wrong direction? People come and talk to me about relationships, and I'll say, does, does him or her make you closer to Jesus or farther away from Jesus? Now, they don't like those kind of questions because most of the time, if it's gotten to the point where they need to come and counsel with me, they know that that relationship has taken them farther away from the book rather than closer to the cross. And I'm speaking to somebody here today. 
That job, that vocation, that career path, is it drawing you closer to Jesus or taking you farther away? In order to go all in, you got to stop going in the wrong direction. Joe and I have been married 26 years. It's still difficult at times for her to determine which is right and which is left. Danny is in her car seat. Joe will be coming up to a stop sign or a stop light and say, Danny, which way should we go? Mama, you know we got to go right. I think my four-year-old sometimes knows better than some of us as adults. At least she knows what direction to go and is willing to go that way. There are some of us in this room that know the right direction to go, but you won't go that way. And you're under conviction all the time. You know in your heart, you know in your head, you know what you're supposed to do, but for whatever reason you won't. You need to burn the ship named past failure and past success. You need to burn the ship named bad habit. You need to burn the ship named regret. You need to burn the ship named guilt. You need to burn the ship named my old way of life. And because I love military history, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Cortez, and even our own biblical character today, Elisha, retreat was not an option. I've burned my ships. I'm moving forward. I believe that to truly pursue the level of discipline that we each desire, there are times when we need to burn our ships. So as I close, what is your ship? What is it that's causing you to go the wrong way? And then once you get headed that way, godly people speak into your life telling you to turn your ship around or you to burn it and you just won't do it. Why? Are you afraid that if you lose that, then you've lost your identity? You've lost who you are? I don't know. But some of us today, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us but we still have a fear of the unknown. We have a fear of being perceived as a failure. I want to give you one last quote, and I'm going to preach it for just a minute and we're done. It's by that great theologian, Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens. 20 years from now. So when I was pulling this sermon together, I thought about that. 20 years from now, I'm going to be 75. I can't believe that. That's what my birth certificate says. 20 years from now, I hope I have the privilege of being your pastor for the next 20. But 20 years from now, will you be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do rather than by the things you did do? Boy, I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have taken that cruise. I wish I'd have gone here. I wish I'd have taken a step of faith and done that. Man, don't live your life full of regret. Man, if you've heard that still, small voice and God's leading you, do it. Because you're going to, over time, there's going to build up that resentment against someone or even yourself because you were unwilling to take a step out on faith 20 years from now. So what did Mark Twain say to do? He said, so throw off the bow lines. Sail away from the safe harbor. Catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, and discover. I think that's why Jesus went to the cross. I believe that's why he rose again on the third day. Not so that we could have quid pro quo. Not so that we could be normal. But so that we could be dangerous to the devil. 
to live our lives in such a way that we make a difference, even if it's in just one other person's life. I'm talking to my buddy Matt Morris yesterday. He's the pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He says, Pastor, i got to tell you this crazy story. They just got back from Uganda on a two-week mission trip. One of the young men that was part of this mission team was one of my students when I was pastoring in Louisville, Kentucky. His name is Austin Sexton. Austin relays this story to Pastor Matt and says, Pastor Matt, I was like downstairs in the lobby and I'm walking past the front desk and I hear this voice. And he said, and I stopped in my tracks and said, man, that voice is familiar. So he goes over and says, who are you listening to? And the young lady, a Ugandan woman who is at the front desk says, it's a guy named Joel Carwell. He said, that used to be my former pastor. Someone had walked through that Ugandan hotel told her she needed to access fbcathens.org, pull up our archives, and listen to a sermon. You and I have no idea of the far reach that God wants to have in your life. Even the most introverted of people over the course of their lifetime will affect 10,000 other people. Are you willing to go all in and be used by the Lord? I know it's the Sunday after July 4th. I know a lot of people are on vacation, but I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about those of us who are here right now. And maybe a young lady in Uganda who might listen to this sermon in a few weeks. What about you? What about your all-in moment? I want you to bow your heads with me. I don't know who this is for, but Jesus loves you enough. I've told you in the past, and I usually do it on Wednesdays, but my family in the past has been full of drunks. I'm not talking about people who just socially drink. They could not handle their liquor, so therefore they got violent. They ran around on their spouse. They acted a fool. So I made a decision a long time ago that I was not going to drink, and I haven't. And that's not to pat anybody on the back. It's just... I knew that if I boarded that ship of alcohol, I may never get off of it because it's in my family tree. It's in my genealogy. And I've had conversations with individuals about one thing or another, and, and someone asked me, and this has been recently because of a wedding I was officiating at, and they were serving alcohol at this wedding. They said, Joel... Um, do you drink? And I said, Dr. Pepper and sweet iced tea, but no, I, I, I've, I've not ever participated. I just, I, number one, didn't have the money to do it. And number two, I thought it was foolish to be out of control. Well, I got to talking to this person, and, and, and they're trying to justify their, their argument, which was fine. And I left them with this, and I don't know who this is for, and it's not just about alcohol, so don't, don't, don't misunderstand that I'm just coming down on that, which I am, but I'm, just understand me. I said, if I did, because of my personality, I could probably control it. I could drink one and I'm done. 
come in from cutting the grass and it's 100 degrees and drink a good cold bud, I'd probably be fine, not, not, not an issue, and I'm, I'm ready to, to go to something else. I said, but what about Zeke and Danny? What about my Elishas? What if I could control it, but my babies or my grandbabies can't? And they saw Elijah... doing things, saying things, participating in things. And they said, because he does, I do. And then they get on that ship of alcohol, and then one day it takes their life. I said, you know, life's just too short to be a fool. So I'm just not going to do that particular I share that because part of this message today was not just about being all in. It was about being a mentor. Some of you in this room are mentors and don't even know it. My generation's watching you. They're listening to you. Because just like I shared in the sermon 20 years from now, many of you will be in heaven. I may be with you. But in 20 years from now, what will we have regrets about? What will we wish we had done or what will we wish that we had stopped doing that turned out to be the detriment and the devil for someone else? I don't know who that's for. Maybe for me. But I'm telling you, I pray that you will listen today. I pray that you will heed, not just hear, James told us, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will just love on you and minister to you and don't grieve him and quench him, just let him do his work. And I pray like since last Tuesday, what I've shared with you today will hang around with you for a while. It'll touch you at the deepest places because it certainly has touched me.